Hey y'all, and welcome to the Herbal Hour. This week we have a great conversation with an epic guest. She has been an EMS for over 10 years and has some very interesting stories about that. She studied anthropology in school and she's now studying naturopathic medicine. We cover all sorts of topics. Our guest is Amanda Norton. We cover topics like paranormal experiences she had during her EMS, very scary occurrences she had, um, how anthropology informs her healing practice, um, and we even talk about gun control and other topics. This is uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasts so far. I hope you guys enjoy. So today we have with us an excellent guest. She is a student at uh, NUNM alongside me studying naturopathic medicine. How did you get started in studying naturopathic medicine? Like, What really inspired you to follow this particular uh, modality? It's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, several things. Working on the back end of healthcare and EMS, so you really get an understanding of what's working and what's not working. Mm-hmm. And I drug my feet for a long time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I stayed in EMT for a long time thinking I'd eventually become a paramedic, maybe even a flight medic. But even that didn't really sit well with me. Mm. And my husband and I actually, um, we weren't even dating at the time. But when we started dating, figured out something weird about him. He started flushing, Mm -hmm. like this really bright red crazy color when he would eat certain things. And over time, I kind of noticed that there was a similarity between all those things were all different kinds of carbs. So bananas, beer, rice, you know, any kind of carbs, he would flush this bright cherry red. And I thought that was the most bizarre thing. So I asked Dr. Google what that was all about, did Mm -hmm. like a quick like carbohydrate intolerant search. And that was the rabbit hole of natural medicine for us. And long, long story short, we dove into paleo, got off all of our medications and just drink the Kool-Aid. And ever since then, I found out what a naturopathic doctor was through that search. And that was the calling and mm. ended up going to school. What, uh, what diet do uh, you and your husband follow these days? Pretty similar. Um, I found out that I don't do well with really low carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. If I go below maybe 80 carbs a day, mm-hmm. I feel really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty typical for women uh, to not do well on the severely low carb diet, um, especially through the paleo model. Um, we know that now after a lot of people have been doing it. Some do really well, some don't. It has to do with uh, hormone production. Right? They think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd say uh, these days, as I was telling you before, I've been following more of like a paleo low carb thing, which means no pie, which mm-hmm. is <laughs> How's that going which is rough. Not, not so good. I mean, <laughs> Uh, thank you for eating pie so mm-hmm. I could live through you, mm-hmm. <laughs> as You're I was welcome. saying. It was um, pie. So what do you think the future of the naturopathic profession is? And what are some areas that you think we can grow? I think this is a great uh, place to kind of dive into since we both are just about to graduate in June. Mm-hmm. So... I think it's, it's also a slippery slope because we're all disgruntled and we're ready to graduate. Right, <laughs> don't right. Be here anymore. Um, I think that we're already headed there, though. Mm. I think that our patients and our future patients, they've already headed that direction. People are sick of covering things up and suppressing their illness Mm. to the point where they're taking shoeboxes full of medication and still feeling like crap. And I think that 
people are really pushing for more of a holistic wellness, health-oriented type of medicine. And it's something we've been doing for a very long time, and we've kind of been on the fringes and the outskirts of, of medical profession. But I really think that a big push of that is them wanting that, is demanding to feel good. And I think our profession is going in a good direction by continuing to foster that and helping us grow in that. Some of the places that we could probably improve upon is staying away from this fearful-based mindset that we have to fit into an allopathic model. Mm-hmm. I think that that's going to really shoot us in the foot in the end. If we continue to contort our profession in such a way that we fit into this medical model that everybody's rejecting, eventually they're going to reject our medicine too. Right. Or it's kind of like what happened with the osteopathic physicians is Mm -hmm. uh, the MD profession was kind of fighting them for a long time. They chose the path of just becoming incorporated. And nowadays, if you talk to most DOs, doctors of uh, osteopathic medicine, Mm -hmm. they don't even practice osteopathy. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad uh, graduated with a degree in that. And he told me the, the residencies for osteopathic manipulation technique, which is Kind of like chiropractic, but it's it has its own particular things and it goes very, very in-depth. That those residencies are completely opened. No one's really doing them, even within that profession. So that's the danger that I think naturopathic medicine faces is if we become too incorporated in the current medical model and con- conventional medicine and we lose our own identity mm-hmm. in the process. And then, you know, we become what they call like green allopaths, Mm -hmm. meaning we just use herbs, uh, supplements at the same way that it's like, oh, you got this symptom, we got this herb for you. And without like looking in deeper, what are the fundamental causes? What's the holistic picture, you know, their diet and their Mm -hmm. lifestyle and all these other um, factors. And I think the trying to conform to the insurance model is a sure way to get into the exact sticky mess that the rest of the medical profession is in. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, and you know the insurance model is you know regulated and run by a bunch of people that aren't doctors. That's so. what. Yeah, we were talking about that. That's a that's a big that's a big problem because there's big decisions being made that affect individual people and patients made by people who don't really understand the medical treatments or whether they're really necessary, which ones are and which ones aren't, mm-hmm. and they reimburse a lot, obviously, for like procedures, even if they're not necessary procedures. Mm-hmm. So. And on top of that, you have this totally reductionist type of, you know, research model that works really well if you have a chemical constituent that you're making a pharmaceutical and it needs to be one specific thing that you're having a mechanism of action on a particular cell or a particular function in the body. But natural medicine doesn't work that way. We do holistic medicine and it takes the whole plant with all its constituents and Mm -hmm. all of the synergistic activity within that plant and you can't study that based off of our scientific method in the allopathic model because you'd have to reduce it to each individual constituent but part of what makes it work so well is that they all are together when Mm. we give the medicine so there's no way to really study our medicine either so in the eyes of allopathy we're a bunch of quacks and vitalists Mm -hmm. because we don't have a reductionist method Mm -hmm. That's the interesting thing about uh, homeopathy or herbalism. They're fundamentally focused on the individual. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 10 people come in with a cough. One can say there's, you know, we're going to test this one herb for these 10 people with a cough and see if it works. And it works in one person, right? Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. oh, this herb doesn't really work that well. It only worked in one person. But out of those 10 people, they all had different reasons for their cough. Maybe one person, it came more from like asthma stuff. Another person, it came from like immune system. Another person had like an anxious cough. And the reason it worked for that one person is because they had the, the type, the specific type of cough that that herb is for. So you get in these treatments where people are treated as um, statistics in this research, like, you know, 100 people with diabetes, not really f- able to factor in like why they have diabetes or all the different manifestations. So like when you choose one herb, obviously it won't work for everybody. But I think the beauty of uh, herbalism and homeopathy is when you find the right one for the right person, then it has very positive effects. But it's not really something you can standardize and say like, this compound is great for cough. This compound is great for diabetes. I mean, there's some that are kind of uh, a little bit like that, but like berberine, for example, um, from Oregon uh, grape root. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some studies showing it helps lower blood sugar. But then again, like if you look into the traditional usage of berberine, you see it has a rich history being used for things like gallbladder issues, liver issues, infections. Um, so you have to take that into account that it might help that person because they have those underlying issues too, and not just because it, it's a blood sugar lowering thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what research is missing is like empiricism, which is you know thousands of years of experience of people trying herbs, seeing that they help. And they can help people without you really understanding why. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one part that research misses is that they think if there's not a theoretical explanation, it can't be true, but it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. It should be the opposite way around. This should be, this has been shown to work. We just don't understand how. Mm-hmm. So I this think a modern, brings us into homeopathy. Yeah. And I think a modern day example of mm-hmm. that, you know, aside from homeopathy is acupuncture. Mm. I still don't know how acupuncture works, but now we have MRIs that say, <clears throat> oh, there is brain activity mm-hmm. that changes when I needle someone. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really interesting conversation. It's like now they're kind of acquiescing that right. there could be something to it. Or it's reduced into, like, <coughs> you know, uh, acupuncture is good for pain and it works through the nervous system. And then, like, it just throws away the thousands of years of intricate, complex information that comes along with, like, how you pick which point. Uh, I have some friends who are studying acupuncture and... Um, looked into it a little bit and it's really complicated. Like there's mm-hmm. all these specific points and they have to do with the different uh, organ systems and the channels mm-hmm. and you have to figure out like, you don't just like give people random acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really hard to fake acupuncture treatment. You know, mm-hmm. they always try to like placebo control the it with a sham. Yeah. It's like they show the sham does just as well and it's like, I don't know. What role do you think ritual actually plays in healing? A lot. A lot. Oh my gosh. I mean, if we're going to stay on the the allopathic model, even they can't deny that because Mm. they've done studies on this. Mm. I mean, talking about shams, there's this famous sham knee surgery model Mm. where the patient was out under general anesthesia. They didn't even cut the knee open. They just splashed water on the knee and the knee got better, right? So there's something to be said for that. And then there's the study on the white coat. People who wore a white coat as physicians made less mistakes. Mm. Then there's studies on touch. Patients who didn't receive any treatment at all other than a conversation with their physician that were touched versus not touched, just even a hand on the shoulder or a hand on the hand of the patient, Mm -hmm. did significantly better. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Do you think that these 
what are called placebo effects can actually make like deeply healing related changes or is it as some critics claim that they just perceive that their condition is better but it's actually not any different what's the difference well when it comes to like things regarding mental health there isn't any difference because Mm -hmm. if you don't perceive yourself as having depression then Mm -hmm. you don't have depression Mm -hmm. unless like we're talking about like fatigue or some other (laughs) physical symptom obviously yeah there's a big mind over matter part but i think Mm. that the big the bigger answer is that we're not symptoms we're people Mm. and we're multifaceted and we're walking batteries we have magnetic fields we have cells we have you know chemical constituents we we are a thing that no science can touch we have cognitive awareness of ourselves and this thing called a conscious Mm -hmm. and when you just treat people as symptoms you just treat the cough and not the person you're not going to get better. You're missing all the other pieces. Mm. And I think that's where we're at in healthcare. People are not getting better. Their shoebox is full of medications and dying decades younger than they should. And all of that is because we're not treating the person anymore. Mm. We're treating a symptom. Right. Suppressing the symptom because the symptom is unpleasant, Mm -hmm. but the symptom is just showing some kind of underlying thing. And I like what you said about us not really understanding like all of these different systems, like whether it's like Chinese medicine or more vitalistic views, naturopathy, Ayurveda, they're all different ways of understanding this like mysterious thing, which is the human body and the human mind and the human spirit. Um, And they're all just attempts at that. But Mm -hmm. no system can claim to have the whole truth because um, one could argue that the truth is infinitely complex because the more that we study into things, the more that we reduce things through reductionism, the more things there are. Like you look into an atom and then you find the particles that make it up. You look into those particles, there's more particles. And I just have this suspicion that you just can keep going infinitely, just like you can in the other direction. You get infinitely small, you get infinite, infinitely big because mm-hmm. there is no like final point either outwards or inwards in the universe. Mm -hmm. There's also something to be said for our capacity to adapt and change as a Mm -hmm. living being and a living thing. Mm -hmm. So we have all this body of evidence of what works now today in the last 50 years with the pharmaceuticals we have or the different types of medicines, um, even in botanical medicines and how they impact our bodies today. But in 50 more years, when our species changes that little bit more, is it going to have the same effect? Mm. So are we going to perpetually have to continue to research the same thing over and over again as our species changes? Mm. And also the plants are evolving and changing too. So it's not a static Mm -hmm. system. That's always very fascinating because there could be a cure for cancer in the herbal world, but maybe it's not here yet. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's going to be like a mutation between two plants in the Amazon rainforest. And it's just going to be the thing that just works for most cancers. It's possible. Well, and why do we have so much cancer now? That's the better question. Right. Because there That's used good... to be cancer hundreds yeah, of years for a long ago. Time, but... but not in the vast quantity and amount that we see. I think see they're today. saying one out of two people will get it in their lifetime now. Yeah. They went up from one out of three to one out of two. Yeah. That's which means that. Insane pretty much everybody's going to get it. Yeah. Um, and it's just a question of... When and what. When and what, and what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you can prevent it entirely. Because these statistics are always based on if everything continues the same way. But you don't have to be part of that projection. You don't have to be part of that graph. Mm-hmm. If you just go off of the graph and don't do the things that everyone else on that graph is doing. 
and then you won't be part of the graph because statistics don't decide life. They're just a measure of life. Uh, they don't like define Whoa, us. Oh, you just got really deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a measurement, you know, we don't, we don't have to be that statistic, um, but we will be if we just go default mode because that's what the statistics are looking at. They're looking at default mode behaviors. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of happy diets. It's a lot of suppression like too. So, I mean, we have all this cancer and this, you know, toxicity in our lives, but we keep suppressing things and uh, instead of allowing things to flow through and, right. and, you know, like fever is a big one for us as, you know, future naturopaths. We don't suppress fevers. Conventionally you do, but fever is a natural way for your body to burn out what shouldn't be there. Right. It's your, um, your immune system gets activated through fever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting what the effect of suppressing that would be. Like, can it lead to other health problems later down the road? Can it lead to autoimmune diseases? Because every time your immune system tries to mount a response, you just like suppress it. Mm-hmm. So like, what does it learn? Like what malfunctions when you do that all the time? Mm-hmm. And I think there's good evidence that the, there is effects of suppressing symptoms over long periods of time because your body's trying to heal you. So you're basically just stopping it from healing and eventually your body just can't really heal itself. It just, right. it's not there to be healed. Um, so you studied anthropology for quite some time before you came to school. Can you, uh, can you speak on a little bit what you learned from anthropology and how you kind of apply it in, um, in healing and in thinking about medicine? I know you were telling me a little mm-hmm. bit before. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing for me is that it took me from a really staunchly black and white view of the world. Mm-hmm. Things were either right or they were wrong. And it put me into this very lovely gray area. Mm-hmm. And that gray area is where humanity lives, Mm. right? So it's given me a lot of patience and a lot of understanding, not only to walk in someone else's shoes, but to circumvent their life and Mm. their circumstances in a way that has built more compassion, just authentically, being able to understand that people are more than their symptoms. People are more than their actions on a bad day. They're more Mm -hmm. than their temper. They're a whole person with a whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition to that, there's a lot of comparison Mm -hmm. where we have, you know, us versus them kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. Anthropology kind of pushes you into this space where it's just, it's not other, it's just different. Mm -hmm. So it takes the us versus them tribalism out of the equation mm. to the point where I don't even look at people anymore a part of their differences. Mm. One of the one of the stories before I got into an ambulance service, I was working in a dialysis clinic and I had a patient who had a rare skin condition. Mm-hmm. And the skin condition causes these fatty tumors under the skin and it's it can be very disfiguring. And my manager asked me to work with this patient. They were coming in new and they were very nervous, rightfully so. Dialysis is terrifying. Mm. And she asked me to work with this patient, and I did. And a couple weeks after working with her consistently, she pulled me aside. She's like, I can't believe that you just work with her. And you don't even give pause to her skin. And I looked at her, like, what are you talking about, her skin? I got into a place where I didn't even notice it was there. Mm. I saw her for the lovely, beautiful person she was. Mm. And I, I got out of my manager's office, and for the first time, I actually saw the tumors on her skin. Mm. 
And I couldn't believe that I didn't see them there before for two Mm. weeks working with her. And I feel like that's what anthropology does is it brings us back to humanity and it takes us out of this us versus them mentality Mm -hmm. by introducing different ways of being human. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways of being human. And in our society, our culture, it's us versus them. It's like if you're different and you're doing things that I'm not familiar with, that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. But for me... And being exposed to so much and being in people's homes as an EMT for so long and walking into different situations, it's just people. Mm. It's not skin color. It's not religion. It's not how they decorate their house. Mm. It's not what they wear. It's not how they hold their facial hair. It's not anything other than a person that I'm looking at. Mm. And I think that that's given me a great deal of compassion, but a great deal of weight off my shoulders that I can look past all the material stuff and look into a person and treat a person as they are. Mm. Yeah. Humans are incredibly complex. Uh, we have a tendency to label them as like good or evil as like their whole being, but it's obvious that we're really a combination of all the things. Everyone has good qualities and bad qualities. And I guess it's just a question of how are those balanced mm-hmm. at the end of the day? Like is the person overall a good person or do they overall wish like bad things for, for people? Um, what's, um, what's the most frightening experience you had when you were doing EMS? (laughs) In all honesty? Yeah, in all honesty. Uh, there was a possession call that we ran that still makes the heckles on the back of my neck stand up. Oh, wow. Uh, we got called out to a, um, domestic dispute Mm -hmm. in a suburban neighborhood And my partner and I, we get there and uh, cops are already there and they've kind of secured the scene and kind of calmed everyone down a little bit. And the way EMS works, at least the system I was from, is you kind of alternate calls with your partner. Mm -hmm. So it was my turn to drive. uh, It was my partner's turn to actually attend the patient. So he goes onto the stoop of the house to talk to the patient and I'm left back by the garage. This is all happening outside. And I'm left back by the garage, and there's a friend and a family member there. So it's my job to kind of interview friends and family, being the driver and not the actual person taking care of the patient. And I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me that his cousin is possessed and that he was talking to him about needing to go get help and talk to his priest and, and go to church and really needs to get a handle on this because he's not acting right. And I said, well, what do you mean he's not acting right? And the cousin looks at me and says, well, if I push him too far, he just goes into this rage and he starts punching things and this like projectile, like exorcist type vomiting. And I'm patiently listening and we're having this conversation. And I look at him and there's this shift in his eyes. And he said, kind of like this. And he doubles over and starts convulsing and contorting and making all of these like growling, gurgling sounds right there in front of the garage. And everybody kind of just is at a standstill and is not really understanding what's happening because this guy is like writhing on the ground. They're all kind of looking at me like, what'd you do to him? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know, got nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. 
So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, this guy is full of crap, and he they're just putting on a show, and this is just going to be one of those things. Mm-hmm. So it turned into my call. Mm. So we get this young man restrained. He has started slamming his head on the ground, so at this point we need to protect him. So we get him physically restrained and, and onto the cot into the back of the ambulance, and he is just strapped in with the harness on the cot and he's just seething at me. Mm. And I didn't think anything of it. Took his vital signs, I started an IV, I checked his blood sugar, you know, did all those things in case he's a diabetic and he's having one of those, you know, out-of-body experiences that low sugar can give you in sometimes. And I asked him how he was doing and his response was, I like your cross. I'm like, oh, well, thank you very much. I like it as well. And we get to the hospital, and I give my handoff report to the doctor, and I'm walking back through the hospital, going to the bathroom to wash my hands, and I'm looking up into the mirror, and my cross is gone. Interesting. I didn't even have it on. Hmm. I wear that thing every day for years. Hmm. So do you think he took it or? It was at home. That's really spooky. Yeah. And I went back. I walked back into the room and I just looked in at him and he saw my face and he winked at me. That's fucking crazy. Hair raising, heckling. There was one other exorcism uh, call that we ran that was equally creepy. Um, that mm-hmm. one was in a basement, and they were actually trying to exorcise this this young woman. Do tell. Uh, <laughs> Since we're on the subject of <laughs> Since exorcism, we're on the subject we start off <laughs> we well with natural medicine and now we're on exorcism. Hey, you know the spiritual dimension is a part of health. You know you can't you can't get away from that part. You can try to, but as we are now seeing, it doesn't work. <laughs> so we literally get called out to an exorcism on this one. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Dispatch said you're going to an exorcism like okay so family's there um congregations there priests is there cops are there at this point and they're in the basement of this home in town and we walk down there and there's this mattress it's totally a hollywood thing but this stuff happens in real life you just don't even know all the stuff that happens in real life, but there's this mattress in this vacant room and all the family and cong- like congregation are along the wall. And there's this young lady, she's probably 18, 19 years old. She's kind of sitting up in bed. And the priest comes up to me and he says, it got pretty physical and we just want her checked out to make sure that she's not hurt. Okay. So I walk over to the bed and this woman's just, out. She won't make eye contact with me. She won't respond to me. And I touch her arm and I said, I'm going to go ahead and take your blood pressure. And she kind of like puts her arm out for me. And the heckles on the back of my neck start going up. So I start saying the Lord's prayer in my head. And immediately that woman looks at me and said, don't you dare do that. Jesus, literally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so interesting things, woo or not. 
So okay, it was so probably what... the most terrifying two experiences, and it was more more of the the visceral sensation and the the experience that I felt during those calls. Mm. Those are the only two times that I felt fearful. So what's your interpretation of of what happened? Like honestly, what, what do you what do you honesty, think happened? Yeah, I feel like some people are. Some people are susceptible to looking behind the curtain. Mm. And when you look behind the curtain, sometimes things see you look back. I've heard that said. That's the uh, When you uh, gaze into the abyss, the abyss also looks back at you. Mm-hmm. And I also feel that some people are opening a door that they can't shut. Mm. And that they're not asking for it, but they're, they're flirting with the possibility that they're not going to like the outcome. Mm. I feel like certain people that are are struggling in spirit or struggling in health or struggling in mental health, they can be touched by mm. the things behind the door. Mm. And they're not always benevolent. Sometimes mm. they're malevolent. Mm. And, you know, my upbringing in a Christian home and seeing the things that I've seen in many different capacities, I wholeheartedly believe there's something behind the curtain. Mm. So do you think in that particular case that if this was some kind of entity that took possession of her, that it was kind of like trying to mess with you or trying to like scare you or something like that? I can't say what the intent was. Mm. All I can say is that it didn't like that I was praying to myself, touching this young woman. And Mm. that scared the crap out of me. Mm. It's really, uh, it's actually pretty, it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> Good, terrifying stories. I didn't stories. sleep for a while those after are pretty, that. <laughs> Those are like psychologically terrifying stories. Yeah. What are some of uh, the very like positive experiences you had to balance it out? Honestly, the first one that comes to mind is this little lady in her home. And she was terrified because she didn't know how to use her glucometer. Mm-hmm. Her her doctor didn't show her how to use it and she was afraid she was going to die in her sleep because her blood sugar was going to get too low. And this sweet lady brought out all of these family photo albums and Mm. we just sat with her and, you know, we were available on scene basically is what it's called where you're available for a call, but we stayed with her and Mm. visited with her for a while and taught her how to use her glucometer. And it was just one of those nice things nice parts of the of the job to just be able to to connect with another human being and we've had several calls like that over the 10 years that I worked on the ambulance of people who are just lonely and there's no reason that they should call us but it's in the middle of the night and they're lonely mm-hmm. and they need someone to just talk to or hold their hand for a while there's there's a devastating thing that happens with our elderly where they're alone and they don't need a nursing home yet but they're so disconnected from the community and this loss of touch with another human being mm. really drives them into a deep depression mm. more than anything, I think. Because they'll have conversations with people or talk to people on the phone or have another animal like a dog or a cat to keep them company. But human touch, mm. there, there's no replacement for that. And mm. I feel like that's the big thing that people want more than anything. And mm. if 
anybody's ever spent a lot of time around, you know, the elderly, they always touch you. They always grab for a hand or they put an arm around you or, and I really think there's something to that. They're, they're missing that or craving that more. Mm. I've definitely noticed that with uh, elderly patients uh, coming to see naturopaths. A lot of times it seems like they're really just there for the company, you know, like they're there for some health complaint, but really why they're there is just, they want to talk to somebody. They want somebody to listen to them to, you know, even do things like take the blood pressure and they're like Mm -hmm. super excited and they always want to arrange like you hang out like afterwards and I'm like, (laughs) I don't know, that's not really professionally allowed. I'll make my own decision when it's my own uh, like practice. But um, it's interesting how the elderly are treated in this culture. They're kind of just very much abandoned, Mm -hmm. uh, not really revered because Mm -hmm. I think our culture is very focused on like the individual and it's focused on like what can the individual do? for people or for themselves, whatever. And if you're really young or you're really old, you can't really do much for society. So they kind of push to the outskirts. Whereas in other traditions, the elderly are looked at, uh, like revered as sources of like wisdom, which they are. I mean, they've lived a long time. There's just having conversations with, you know, people in their seventies, eighties, they have like amazing stories. Um, for example, I was talking to my grandma, she's, uh, 88. Um, and she was telling me about how during World War II, her and her family had to like literally live in the woods for like a long time. And she basically, it it was a very traumatic experience and they barely had any food. Um, and they were kind of just like hiding, I guess, away from the warfare or whatever that was happening. Um, what an amazing life. Yeah. Like who in our generation has experienced anything even like remotely like that in the United States? Like not me. You know. I think we have our own personal hell here in this this culture. Right. That's well, equally as traumatic. Well, here's the thing. So I was I was researching in a little bit into the HPA axis, right? Mm-hmm. The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is, you know, the hormonal neurosystem. Um, and it's how we have a stress response and it's how we recover from a stress re- response. What the research was indicating is that to have like a healthy like adaptation to stress, you actually have to have like mild to moderate stresses early in life that you're able to like kind of overcome or compensate. And that makes you strong and resilient. Um, on the other hand, if you have too much of those, like if they're devastating, like if you're just being uh, traumatized constantly with no recourse, then that puts your HPA access out of whack and you have all sorts of anxiety, PTSD, all these other symptoms of like a stress response gone wrong. And then on the, on the flip side, related to this, if you don't have any stress in your life, you're just coddled your whole life, like every little thing is just gonna, it's gonna trigger you, you know? Cause I don't, if you had like a really hard life, then something like somebody insulting you, just laugh. You're like, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if you're used to very, very low stress, cause every, every it's a lot about like protection. I think you were you were talking about that the safety culture. I think you were saying. Yeah, there's a um, book that I read, and I say read, but really I listened to them on Audible. Mm-hmm, and it was right. uh, the coddling of the American mind, and mm-hmm. they talk about this culture of safetyism, and they do talk about resilience quite a bit, and mm-hmm. they pretty much what you just said, they Mm -hmm. touch on on several chapters where the helicopter mom generation that has raised the generation Z, which has been 
That's which has term. been um, they're That's in moms their, who like hover over their children. Uh huh. Yeah, they don't let them that. play in the dirt, and you know they wash their hands with the you know sani wipe every two minutes, and you know just helicopter over their kids, and they don't let them you know learn and grow, and you know have fights with each other and work mm-hmm. stuff out. You know, mm-hmm. but they're saying that this Generation Z. Um, from 1995 to 2012, I believe, is mm-hmm. is that generation, um, has a loss of resilience due to that helicopter parenting mm. and that they don't know how to, they don't know how to manage life things. They don't know mm. how to manage stressors and things are traumatic and triggering to them all, to, all the time and they become anxious and depressed. And one of the statistics was an increase, 140% increase in anxiety and depression in that generation alone. Mm. So there's something to be said about like stressors and healthy stressors and being able to work through those. So you have some kind of template to do life Mm. basically. And we see that a lot. Um, I've seen that a lot rather this juxtaposition between, you know, pulling up your bootstraps kind of life to moving here to the Pacific Northwest where, Mm everything is a safetyism culture where you have to have permission to be yourself for fear of hurting somebody or triggering somebody from mm-hmm. their own traumas. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting switch that's happening because we've robbed ourselves of being able to be human and authentically. So I have to have permission to be who I am so that I don't hurt you. There's something to be said for protecting each other and having the wherewithal and the mindset to not cause more trauma. Mm-hmm. But some of the safetyism culture that is is developing out of this model, it's like taking cars away from everyone for fear of the drunk drivers. Mm-hmm. Is that really the answer? Or do we need to help support the loss of resilience and build that up in our adults that Mm. didn't get it as children. Mm. So that's the question right now. It's like, how do we gain this resilience back? Mm. And some people would argue that the resilience verbiage and grit as Brene Brown likes to, Mm -hmm. likes to call it is a white supremacy Mm. ideal. So that's also an interesting conversation. Interesting. But I don't know that you could call it that considering that across all ethnicities of that generation, the depression and anxiety is there. Mm. It makes sense with the helicoptering. So we mimic our parents from a young age. So how they act, right? So if your mom is like hovering over you and is always anxious that something bad is going to happen to you, eventually you internalize that. And now you're, you know, 20 and your mom's not around, but you just have like an impending sense that something bad's going to happen. Maybe that's an explanation for at least part of anxiety, like uh, projected, uh, especially when it doesn't seem to come from any cause. Like if your mom was always anxious, always trying to protect you from things, basically what that's teaching you is your environment is very dangerous. And your environment is so dangerous that you can't even see that it's dangerous. It's dangerous in subtle ways, bacteria, invisible things, Mm -hmm. demons, ghosts. It's a lot of fear. So you're afraid of things that you can't even really disprove or prove or see, Um, like bacteria you can't see. So like when is is washing your hands enough? Mm -hmm. You can't tell. Mm -hmm. So you just live in constant fear. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of fear in that generation. There's a lot of anxiety for that reason, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and anxiety is kind of like looking into the future. It's like worrying what will happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas depression is more like, 
ruminating over the past and feeling bad about the past mm-hmm. or things, things like that. But and when you're ruminating about the past and you're stuck there and then you're anxious about the future, you're unable to function now. So yeah. it's a loss of the ability to be able to be. To be present. And I think, too, with that generation, I think a good portion of it is also the integration with electronics. And just, uh, you know, from a young age, kids being on iPads and all that. Like, we all understand. Um, I grew up, like, around computers and everything, but not in the generation where, like, from a young age I had them. So I still have some level of separation. And, you know, being on your electronics all the time, it takes you out of your body. Mm-hmm. And being out of your body is one of the main reasons why you you feel anxiety specifically. Because you're, if you're grounded in your body, you're just you're in the present moment because mm-hmm. you can only be grounded in your body in the present moment. And anxiety only exists really f- looking out for future fears and obviously looking out for threats in your immediate environment. But when you don't see any threats in your immediate environment, you calm down. You're like, I'm actually fine. This is a pretty safe room right here. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and the, the loss of interaction between people. Mm-hmm. So there's this face-to-screen time that's happening and mm-hmm. people are not interacting with each other in a real capacity. You know, everything's mm-hmm. filtered through a filter, through social media or airbrushing on a magazine or, mm-hmm. you know, nothing is real. Mm-hmm. And the loss of reality in your daily life from a young age has to be very anxiety-provoking. Because as soon as you look away from that screen, everything is foreign to you. Mm. Because you're no longer looking through a filter. Mm. And there's no eye contact anymore. Mm. So there's no connection being made. Mm. And people don't touch each other anymore. And our, mm. our culture has never been very touchy culture anyway. But there's all this, you know, fear of touching each other. And like we talked earlier, the, the human contact piece mm. In a non-perverted, nothing other than just human-to-human interaction and compassion and love, that's missing. Mm. We don't have it. Mm. Even within family groups, there's not a lot of that anymore. Mm. I think it's very, very beneficial for people to really read the classics of literature and mythology Mm -hmm. and things like that because they teach us that there is a lot of meaning in human life and there is a lot to be gained from conversation with people and just mm-hmm. um, more of like an appreciation for, you know, just casual conversations you might have with people. That's all our life is. All our life is is like us surviving in the environment, having interactions with people. There's, life doesn't really happen anywhere else. So if people don't like want to converse with each other, they don't want to you know, have direct, like, honest conversation, they would rather, you know, be on their computers or something like that, then, I mean, all that stuff is new to us. Like, we are, what, maybe a million years old, 500,000 years old humans. You might have a more specific date than <laughs> than I do. Um, but, you know, computers and all electronics and things like that, machines even are, you know, 100 years old, 50 years old. Uh, and we're not really like made to interface with them. I mean, maybe that's what we're heading into. Maybe we're evolving into like a, like a, I don't know, cybernetic organism or what something. What's that Bruce Willis movie, Surrogate? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't see it. Is it good? <laughs> it's, it's good. It's one of those like, holy crap, that could actually happen. Mm. And we better be careful. It's already kind of happening. I mean, our phones are already like in our pockets. Like how... 
the example is always given, like how far is it from being like in your body? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not really that far. Like you, do you ever uh, accidentally leave the house without your phone? <laughs> yes. And the immediate response is, oh my God, I need to turn around and get my phone. Yeah. It's like serious. It's like almost like a, like it's identified as like a, a part of your body. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really just a tool yeah. and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So that it's also very like trendy to just be like anti-technology while using technology, which is very hypocritical. <laughs> so I'd like to flip that around and be like, no, it's a tool. Use it for good things. Mm-hmm. You know, use, um, use technology to connect with people, not to disconnect. I mean, we have technology here, but really we're just having a conversation. This is just like to capture it so other people can be like driving their car and be like, oh, that was a cool like little little uh, talk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be used in positive ways. So mm-hmm. I think that's the way we should view it, not that like technology is evil, but that technology is a tool. you got to right. use that so tool also, for good things. It also lends to that loss of resilience, right? Because mm. I, I grew up, I didn't have a phone until high school. My whole childhood was the lights come on, you come home. My parents had no idea where I was the whole day. I go outside, come in for lunch maybe, or maybe I'd go to a friend's house, but they wouldn't know. Yeah, we were like outdoor cats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we were fine, basically. Yeah, I we mean, were fine. it was like that for me it's too, fine. actually. Like, you know, I'd go to school and I would just hang out with my friends. But now we I basically chip them. our children, like, with the veterinary tracking chips, like where are you at all times? And people are watching dots on their screens. Like, did my kid get to school okay? And we actually live in a safer world today than 50 years ago. Mm. Crime rates are down. Well, safety and freedom are kind of like on yeah. a pendulum. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a pendulum, but on a scale. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a lot, a lot of safety. You have to take away from freedom because mm-hmm. freedom is the freedom to get hurt, basically. I mean, you know... Um, Freedom to like play around on the jungle gym. That's also freedom to get injured on the jungle gym. So where where do you cut off the line where safety and freedom like which one goes first? You but know? we're not fragile. We're not. So what if you get? I can hurt tell you that firsthand. Gym. I can tell you that first uh, firsthand. You could get. <laughs> It'd uh, be fine. So, uh, so just the other day in sparring, uh, my sparring partner got me with like a really nice hit, like right in the chin, like really hard, and I was like. Uh, you ring okay. your clock? I got like, yeah, it like woke me up a little bit. But I was like, okay, yeah, we're hardy. Humans yeah. are very hardy. We think mm-hmm. we're like fragile glass beings. Um, but I can, we're really I can tell you we, can we take, are hardy folk. We can take hits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Working in EMS for so long, I can tell you people are pretty resilient. They're, mm. they're not fragile. Mm. They're not fragile people. Mm. I feel like, you know, you kind of touched on that like manifestation of, you know, loss of resilience or, you know, having this anxiety, but it's also manifesting like I'm a fragile person. I have to be careful all the time. Mm -hmm. But challenge and taking risk is not a bad thing. That's how we learn. That's where we learn where the boundaries are. And, Mm. you know, if you don't take risk, then you don't know where the boundaries are. And if you don't know where the boundaries are, you can't move. Mm. You can't grow. You can't, you know, go out into the world and, you know, live your life and live your dreams because you're constantly worried about what if life is risky, you know, life always ends with death. So that's (laughs) the greatest risk. I mean, the question of is just when, you know, Mm -hmm. it's coming for everybody. Um, but in the meantime, in the meantime, might as well take some, some positive risks. And I think fear mostly stops us obviously from taking risks, but when that fear is, uh, conditioned into us and taught to us that like being afraid is good and that you should be, uh, 
then instead of learning to adapt to the environment and learning how to control your own fear that other people should change because of that, that's when you start getting into like interesting grounds that we're in. I mean, um, for example, a very controversial topic, especially here in Portland, gun control, right? Ooh, that's and, a red hot button. And when you <laughs> and when you look at actually, it's actually interesting. The gun laws of Oregon mm-hmm. are just like some of the most lax in the whole country, but you specifically can't really have guns in major cities like Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a hot button issue, and there's a lot of things too, and it, it goes in. The debate really is about that question of like security. Um, uh, safety versus freedom. Like that's re- the fundamental question that's being argued. And there's good points on both sides. Um, but that's important to know. There's good points on both sides. Mm-hmm. So in a perfect world, no one would need weapons. But we don't live in a perfect world, you know. Mm-hmm. And in some parts of the country, like you want to protect yourself. So I think... Everyone should decide what they wish. And I think there is some good reason that it was included in the Constitution. I think the uh, founding fathers had some insight into the fact that, you know, what I do you do like if your government's really tyrannical, Im- you know? It was really important. It's the second thing they put on there, right? First was freedom of speech. Second it's, was... It's the basic right to defend yourself and your property mm-hmm. and what kind of belongs to you. And, mm-hmm. you know... All disarmament means is that the police is just like armed like the military and the military's armed. So really all you do is you upset the balance of power away from people to the government. And I think that's what people don't really realize is that they're talking about gun control, but like people are still going to have guns. It's just going to be criminals and it's going to be the police and military going to have guns. It's not really going to get rid of guns. Mm -hmm. Like that's not actually possible. It's about redistribution of guns. Was it the UK? They took away guns, and then their knife crime went up. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If if You're somebody has an somebody. intent to hurt somebody, but they're gonna find a way. There's arguments to be made that you know certain weapons are more you know easy to use to harm more people mm-hmm. if you were going for it. But like anybody who really wants to hurt people, and typically those people tend to be really intelligent, unfortunately. So they can devise all sorts of plans, make all sorts of improvised explosives. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's it, it's it's the question, you know. And then there's cases of people, you know, an armed robbery and then somebody who is concealed carrying just like literally pulls out a gun and just shoots them before anything happens. And that that has to be weighed in on the side of, you know, what's the safest place? Is the safest place where nobody has guns and only a few people have guns? Or is it where everyone has like at least the right to like have a gun if they want to for themselves? What's the country that like... Uh forces you to carry that's an interesting what is this sparta are you talking about sparta no (laughs) (laughs) i thought there was a a european country that required all of their civilians to bear arms and their crime was super low because people were not afraid to act or keep it was like self-policing well, that's the thing. It is, it is self-policing. When the, when the people have the power, then the, you don't need the police because it's like, you know, if you go to a, like a bar and you, are you really going to pick a fight when you know 10 people next to you have guns? Like you're just going to sit there and be quiet. Like why would you even want that? I think that's arguably what happens in Texas, right? Yeah, I, I heard. <laughs> like yeah. People don't Actually, do I, I, after this, I'm going to look into what like the actual crime rates and like shooting rates are in Texas. Like I, that'd be interesting because they do have pretty obviously lax – Mm-hmm. Uh, 
gun laws. Honestly, this is this is my belief on the matter. It's a little bit extreme. <laughs> I think everybody should be allowed to carry a sword. <laughs> oh my Like goodness. the olden days. <laughs> Could you imagine? That would be the most fair, because what are you going to do with a sword? You can only really defend yourself with a sword. I mean... Could you imagine bus transportation with people trying to carry swords and sit down on that? Maybe not. That there actually is... Um, in Arizona, it's legal. There's a video to of... To carry a sword? Yes. To open carry a sword. Yep, it's, it's legal. There's a... A sharpened sword? A sharpened sword. Yeah, um, all sorts of long-bladed weapons. But mm. there's a video leading to the credence of this belief. Uh, there was this... Something was going on on the subway. There was, like, two guys, like, beating up some other guy in the corner. And this other, like, white dude with, like, a ponytail. He's, like, one of those guys who, like, thinks they're, like, a samurai, kind like, of. I went through that <laughs> went through that phase myself. Um, but you can tell this guy really knows what he's doing because he's walking up and he's, like kind of like holding like a katana like this and he's like drawing it, you know, the traditional way and everything. Oh my and he's like approaching them and he like pulls it out on them. He's about to like slash them and they just like run. But <laughs> he basically protected somebody who was getting their, you know, their, their duty beaten, you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think it really, this is really a question of um, morality. If people are good people, then, you know, it, they they use things like that wisely. And then it actually makes crime much more difficult because if good people have means of recourse, then people who don't really care about those laws, they have to be a little bit more afraid. They have to be a little bit more careful. It's not just, you know, it, who's going to rob stores if you know every guy has a shotgun behind the ca- Like, mm-hmm. it's just too much risk. And that's like somebody who doesn't really care about society's laws or might be antisocial or something. They don't really care about like whether they get in trouble. Um, they care more about if they're going to get like hurt by it. They care like about self, they, they care about themselves basically. So like they want to rob the bank, but they don't want to get killed in the robbing the bank. So like if they know that that's a risk, then they won't actually do it. It's the lowest level of like preventing crime. But I mean, it works obviously. Um, the best level is people actually just realize that it's not beneficial in the long run. Um, but, I mean, our prison system is interesting, too, on that, on that topic. <laughs> um, so what's like of, uh, you were telling me you had a very, like, hilarious experience when you were doing EMS as well. Like, very funny, funny events. <laughs> I don't know that I could point to any one thing in particular. It's just mm. shenanigans, mm. right? It's super troopers and rescue me and all the, you know, other drama Hollywood shows all rolled up into one. Mm. Um, there's a lot of pranks. Mm. Uh, there's some downtime. It's either feast or famine. It feels like mm. we're either running, you know, running our butts off, you know, doing a call an hour, you know, more mm. in a 12 hour shift, uh, or we're sitting mm. and just waiting for a call. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of pranks. Um, there's a lot of shenanigans. It's good camaraderie. It's a healthy way to release, uh, some of that adrenaline and some of the tension and some of the really crappy things that we see mm. and, and deal with. But, did you find that any of the difficult experiences, they really affected you for long afterwards? Mm-hmm. They still do. Mm. Yeah. I remember you were telling me a particularly um, intense uh, story. I think it was with like a young girl. You don't need to get into it if you don't want to. But I, I still think about that, how you sometimes like st- still see her face and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a domestic violence uh, mm. call. And mm. I think more than than anything, it was the the love and compassion she had for her son, she had hid her son in the, in the home while, um, 
this man attacked her and he had strangled her so hard it broke her hyoid bone. So she's making this awful noise because she couldn't speak mm. and she was just beaten and just the love that she had for her child that came out in that moment. It's one of the only times I had to stick my head into the doghouse called the doghouse. It's the, um, the partition between the driving space and the box of the ambulance where mm. we have the patients, there's a little cutout hole there. It's one of the only times that I had to stick my head in there and actually cry and let some of that emotion out before mm. I could return to the patient. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. The things you think are going to bother you aren't the things that are going to bother you. Mm. And then some of the things like, why, why did that bother me so much? It's interesting. The mm. things that hit you are the things you don't expect are the things that are going to hit mm. you. Um, and generally the things that stick with you and hit you, I can only speak for myself and my experience, mm-hmm. but, uh, the things that hit me are the things that are the echoes of humanity's capacity to do evil to mm-hmm. one another. Those are the things that stuck with me. Um, and I feel like since I have a scope of human's capacity, I have a greater appreciation and more patience for people because now that middle ground has been widened right because i've seen some really horrible things right so now i have more capacity for the middle ground it's like considering what is possible for people to do the fact that we're even you know like polite and civilized like 90 percent of the time is like actually pretty amazing Mm -hmm. i can i can definitely attest to that Mm -hmm. um I think, but in a lot of ways, we're also very like repressed and suppressed because of that. And I think there's like a next level to transcend where we integrate these qualities and actually are even like beyond being civilized. We're just like moral human beings, not moral because like someone told you to be or something like that, or because of fear of consequences, but just a deeper understanding that that's actually the most like meaningful, fulfilling way of life. Mm-hmm. So that your your good actions are actually grounded in not just like a fear-based place, but it's Mm -hmm. like in a, because you want, you know, you like choose. I think that's the kind of a big thing of that, of that story of um, Adam and Eve and uh, the garden is that free will that they had that free will to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And I was, had an episode with uh, Jacob Schmidt where we were talking about that. And if you, if you don't have the capacity to do evil, you don't have the capacity to do good. And mm-hmm. that might be why they're, you know, it's always the question in theology and religion is why does evil exist? If, you know, if God is good, if the world is good, why does evil exist? That's always the fundamental question. Um, maybe that's part of the answer is like the only way for good to exist is if everyone really has complete freedom to do anything. And anything could also be really bad, but they have to kind of learn for themselves why the bad is the bad. The bad isn't bad because someone decided it. The bad is the bad because... It leads to, you know, chaos. It leads to um, terrible life. It leads to all sorts of issues. Um, I feel like the crux of that is really you can't have free will unless you have a choice. Mm-hmm. So if God is good, you need another choice. Mm-hmm. And the other choice is evil. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can't really choose God if you don't have the juxtaposition. So you need both for free will to happen or you don't have choice. And without choice, it's all a moot point. Mm. And I think for the most part, we're conditioned just to like avoid evil. Like 
as far as like doing good, that's like a an exceptional quality to actually like want to do good for people. Um, but like we all at least try to avoid evil. So that's a good start. Civilization's going in a good direction. <laughs> I mean, the you know, people murdering each other for their houses is like you know, that would be in the news if that happens. It's like a, definitely more of a rare occurrence these days. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was times in history where it was just, you know, might equals right and you're just like pillaging and things like that. So we're a little bit beyond that. Some countries are not. Um, but so we're, I think we're moving in a good direction. But we have to for, uh, not forget that we're humans and that everything that we try to create around our, ourselves is just a house of cards. Like we have to understand who we actually really are and what we need to live and what really fulfills us um, and then build our systems around that instead of, you know, the other way around. Um, and allowing space for that to flux. Mm-hmm. We get really set in our ways mm. as people. Uh, and our brains are built that way. They're hardwired that way. We're, we're creatures of habit and we like cycles. Our whole endocrine system is based off of circadian rhythms and, mm. You know, it's hard to get out of that. And something that's foreign mm-hmm. or something that's new, there's always going to be pushback. But mm. in order to have that growth that you're talking about, we need change. So having the space for that yeah. is what's going to help propel us forward. I think it's, yeah, it's important to see the truth and viewpoints that are diametrically opposed to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at least as far as psychologically, the truth is really in the middle mostly but the middle's not like sexy um the middle in the sense of like any like really strong point like if two people are on two sides of the pole the reason why they fight and they dig in so deeply is because they're both right like in their own ways at the same time mm-hmm. but the the middle isn't you know doing half of this and half of that it's understanding that those are two good points to take into consideration before you like make a decision or choose how to live your life um, I think it's, it's important to even people who have like different opinions than you, that's like a big thing where it's like, oh, they're just wrong. Instead of thinking like my opinion is just like one way to view it. And like, there's good art, like back to the gun control thing, there's good arguments on both sides. Like there's really good arguments on both sides. I think that's why it's such a contentious issue is I think the only way to decide that probably is on a state by state basis, but, mm-hmm. um, is people come together and they really decide what's our priority. Like, what do we really care about the most? And then decide, like, together what should be done in terms of that. And But not, like, you know, dig our head into the sand with the ostrich and think that, like, if you ban guns, that, like, people who want to get guns won't be able to get it. You're just going to create a black market for guns. I mean, that's obvious with the war on drugs. If we do a war on guns, like, uh, I bet you there's going to be more guns, actually. They're just going to be black market. So, we see that with drugs. We I mean, we already see that with guns. There's guns that people should not have. Yep. Guns that people build on their own with parts, right? I don't think suppressing the issue is going to change the fact that they're there. Mm. But I have yet to meet anybody who would tell me that they would be upset if they were being held at gunpoint if somebody with a concealed carry pulled out a weapon and shot the guy that was holding them at gunpoint. I wouldn't be upset at all. I'd be very happy. <laughs> right. right. So you're going to have this conversation and say, oh, I don't want anybody to have a gun because, you know, the psychos are going to get the guns. They're already getting the guns. So do you want more people to be armed to protect you? Should that happen or not? So there's that There's that question. I actually heard a, an interesting point about gun control that relates to kind of like the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. And somebody was making the point that supporting gun, like 
gun freedom is supporting like feminism in a sense. So their argument was as such. And this the this is debatable, obviously, to some extent. Some people debate whether there's any biological difference between males and females. Um, what I've seen, at least, right, I've, I've seen the research and just obvious common sense that in general, males have more muscle mass. They have like maybe 20 or 30% greater upper arm strength, that, that kind of stuff across the board. Obviously, like an Olympian or MMA fighter female <laughs> would beat the crap out of me. I'm not talking about the <laughs> exceptional people. I'm talking about the general. We're talking about the middle of the distribution, right? But their, their argument is that guns actually are most beneficial for females, being that they are most often preyed upon by males, um, not other females, and that they, in many cases, they are preyed upon by people who are stronger than them, by people who are bigger than them. And what's the biggest leveling field? A gun. Mm-hmm. So I, I've heard that uh, as an argument. I think it's a strong argument because if every, you know, if every woman carried around like a little pistol and every guy knew that, we would be living in a different world. I don't think people would be messing around as much. And I think that that's good. Because, you know, we kind of threw away all this aggression and violence stuff, but we forgot that, you know, that's necessary for defense of yourself. And then that's, that's okay. And I think that's the big point of the Founding Fathers is that we actually have a right to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't have a privilege to defend our, ourselves. We have a right. That's, there's a really, really big difference between mm-hmm. that because a privilege can be taken away. Mm-hmm. Like when you're thrown in jail, you don't have the privilege to defend yourself anymore. So... Mm. Strong points. Mm. So basically, get a gun. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being on the show. I uh, appreciate the conversation as always. We get uh, we get deep, and I'd, I'd love to have you on to talk about uh, another uh, topic, such um, as gun control. Now, yeah, oh my <laughs> we really squirreled out on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting topic, I and mean, you know, we we live in an area where it's like contentious to even like discuss, but. Honestly, I'm open. I'm open to both arguments, and I see the other side of gun control, which is that there are like terrible atrocities that are committed with weapons. My big question is whether removing the right from all people will really change that. Like I said, that's the really questionable aspect. Taking if it's cars shown away that from that is, everybody to save us from the drunk drivers. It's right. not. Or the stabbings that happened. I think it was in China where like 20 or something people got killed from one guy running around stabbing people. That's insane. It's like to be adequately safe from all possibilities, you have to literally live in like a rubber box world. And I don't think that that's really like a good alternative. So I think we've got to figure out how we can be safe and, you know, secure and still have freedom. Like find like that where all of those things meet, you know, to some. I think that's heaven. Mm. Everyone's strapped in heaven. <laughs> no one does anything wrong. <laughs> Everyone has swords. <laughs> Flaming swords. Oh my gosh. Like the cherubim. Um anyway, thanks again. Thanks, Bogdan. Yeah. <laughs>